Welcome to Lost in the Woods Fairy Tales. I'm your host, Autumn Woods, and I'm so excited you're here. We're continuing our foray into the lost husband stories, tales of women who bravely venture forth, enduring extraordinary trials and tribulations to rescue the men they love from living anything less than an abundant life. Last time, we talked about overcoming impossible obstacles to fostering trust, intimacy, and communication in marriage. But what happens when your man is more invested in these things than you are? Unlike last episode, where the zealous bride breaks trust in order to gain intimate access to her husband's imprisoned vulnerability, this time, it is the lost husband who recognizes the love and need between them long before his heroine will admit it to herself. Like God, he loves her with an everlasting love and knows that true freedom can only be experienced by them both when she willingly offers her love in return. The story of Beauty and the Beast has endured for generations in the hearts of men and women because it speaks of the transformative power of love. The earliest penned version of the story as we know it was written by French author Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Vinove and published in 1740. This iteration offers a fascinating backstory left out of later adaptations and runs nearly a hundred pages long. But the version of the story that nearly every subsequent incarnation can trace its roots back to was written by Madame Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont in 1756. This is the one that countless authors and filmmakers from Jean Cocteau to Shelley Duvall to Disney referenced before putting their own spin on the tale as old as time. In it, we're taken on a journey with a young woman who knows the mechanics of her rescue mission, but learns that love is the oil that makes the machine run successfully. So, let's get lost as we read part one of Beauty and the Beast Once upon a time, there was a very wealthy merchant who lived with his six children three boys and three girls. Since he was a man of intelligence and good sense, he spared no expense in educating his children and hiring all kinds of tutors for them. His daughters were all very beautiful, but the youngest was admired by everyone. When she was little, people used to refer to her as the beautiful child. The name Beauty stuck, and as a result, her two sisters were always very jealous. The youngest daughter was not only more beautiful than her sisters, she was also better behaved. The two older sisters were vain and proud because the family had money. They tried to act like ladies of the court and paid no attention at all to girls from merchant families. They chose to spend their time only with people of rank. Every day, they went to balls, to the theater, to the park, and they made fun of their younger sister, who spent most of her time reading good books. Since the girls were known to be very wealthy, many prominent merchants were interested in marrying them. But the two older sisters always insisted that they would never marry unless they found a duke, or at the very least, a count. Beauty, as I noted, this was the name of the youngest daughter, very politely thanked all those who proposed to her, but she told them that she was still too young for marriage and that she planned to keep her father company for some years to come. Out of the blue, 
the merchant lost his fortune, and he had nothing left but a small country house quite far from town. With tears in his eyes, he told his children that they would have to live in that house from now on, and that, by working there like peasants, they could manage to make ends meet. The two elder daughters said that they did not want to leave town, and that they had many admirers who would be more than happy to marry them, even though they were no longer wealthy. But the fine young ladies were wrong. Their admirers had lost all interest in them now that they were poor, and since they were disliked because of their pride, people said, Those two girls don't deserve our sympathy. It's quite satisfying to see pride take a fall. Let them play the ladies while tending their sheep. At the same time, people were saying, As for beauty, we are very upset by her misfortune. She's such a good girl. She speaks so kindly to the poor. She is so sweet and sincere. There were a number of gentlemen who would have been happy to marry beauty, even though she didn't have a penny. She told them that she could not bring herself to abandon her poor father in his distress, and that she would go with him to the country in order to comfort him and help him with his work. Poor Beauty had been upset at first by the loss of the family fortune, but she said to herself, No matter how much I cry, my tears won't bring our fortune back. I must try to be happy without it. When they arrived at the country house, the merchant and his three sons began working the land. Beauty got up every day at four in the morning and started cleaning the house and preparing breakfast for the family. It was hard for her at first, because she was not used to working like a servant. At the end of two months, however, she became stronger, and the hard work made her very healthy. After finishing her housework, she read or sang while spinning. Her two sisters, by contrast, were bored to death. They got up at ten in the morning, took walks all day long, and talked endlessly about the beautiful clothes they used to wear. Look at our sister, they said to each other. She is so stupid and such a simpleton that she is perfectly satisfied with her miserable lot. The good merchant did not agree with his daughters. He knew that beauty could stand out in company in a way that her sisters could not. He admired the virtue of his daughter, above all, her patience. The sisters not only made her do all the housework, they also insulted her whenever they could. The family had lived an entire year in seclusion when the merchant received a letter informing him that a ship containing his merchandise had just arrived safely in its home port. The news made the two elder sisters giddy with excitement, for they thought they would finally be able to leave the countryside, where they were so bored. When they saw that their father was ready to leave, they begged him to bring them dresses, furs, laces, and all kinds of baubles. Beauty did not ask for anything, because she thought that all the money from the merchandise would not be enough to buy everything her sisters wanted. Don't you want me to buy anything for you? asked her father. You are so kind to think of me, Beauty answered. Can you bring me a rose? For there are none here. It was not that Beauty was anxious to have a rose, but she did not want to set an example that would make her sisters look bad. Her sisters would have said that she was asking for nothing in order to make herself look good. The good man left home, but when he arrived at the port, he found that there was a lawsuit over his merchandise. 
After much trouble, he set off for home as impoverished as he had been on his departure. He had only thirty miles left to go, and was already overjoyed at the prospect of seeing his children again, when he had to cross a dense forest and got lost. There was a fierce snowstorm, and the wind was so strong that it knocked him off his horse twice. When night fell, he was sure that he was going to die of hunger or of the cold, or that he would be eaten by the wolves that he could hear howling all around. All of a sudden, he saw a bright light at the end of a long avenue of trees. The bright light seemed very far away. He walked in its direction and realized that it was coming from an immense castle that was completely lit up. The merchant thanked God for sending help, and he hurried toward the castle. He was surprised that no one was in the courtyard. His horse went inside a large open stable, where he found some hay and oats. The poor animal, near death from hunger, began eating voraciously. The merchant tied his horse up in the stable and walked toward the house, where not a soul was in sight. Once he entered the great hall, however, he found a warm fire and a table laden with food, with just a single place setting. Since the rain and snow had soaked him to the bone, he went over to the fire to get dry. He thought to himself, The master of this house or his servants will not be offended by the liberties I am taking. No doubt someone will be back soon. He waited a long time. Once the clock struck eleven and there was still no one in sight, he could not resist the pangs of hunger, and, trembling with fear, he took a chicken and ate it all up in two big bites. He also drank several glasses of wine, and, feeling more daring, he left the great hall and crossed many large, magnificently furnished apartments. Finally, he found a room with a good bed. Since it was past midnight and he was exhausted, he took it upon himself to close the door and go to bed. When he got up the next day, it was already ten in the morning. He was greatly surprised to find clean clothes in the place of the ones that had been completely ruined by the rain. Surely, he thought to himself, this palace belongs to some good fairy who has taken pity on me. He looked out the window and saw that it was no longer snowing. Before his eyes, a magnificent vista of gardens and flowers unfolded. He returned to the great hall, where he had dined the night before, and found a small table with a cup of hot chocolate on it. Thank you, Madam Fairy, he said out loud, for being so kind as to remember my breakfast. After finishing his hot chocolate, the good man left to go find his horse. Passing beneath a magnificent arbor of roses, he remembered that Beauty had asked him for a rose, and he plucked one from a branch with many flowers on it. At that very moment, he heard a loud noise and saw a beast coming toward him. It looked so dreadful that he almost fainted. You are very ungrateful, said the beast in a terrible voice. I have saved your life by sheltering you in my castle, and you repay me by stealing my roses, which I love more than anything in the world. You will have to pay for your offense. I'm going to give you exactly a quarter of an hour to beg God's forgiveness. The merchant fell to his knees, and hands clasped, pleaded with the beast. My liege, pardon me. I did not think I would be offending you by plucking a rose for my daughter, who asked me to bring her one or two. 
I am not called my liege, said the monster. My name is Beast. I don't like flattery, and I prefer that people say what they think, so don't try to move me with your compliments. But you said that you have some daughters. I am prepared to forgive you if one of your daughters comes to die in your place. Don't argue with me. Just go. If your daughters refuse to die for you, swear that you will return in three days. The good man was not about to sacrifice one of his daughters to this hideous monster, but he thought, at least I will have the pleasure of embracing them one last time. He swore that he would return, and Beast told him that he could leave whenever he wished. But I don't want you to leave empty-handed, he added. Return to the room in which you slept. There you will find a large empty chest. You can fill it up with whatever you like, and I will have it delivered to your door. The beast withdrew, and the good man thought to himself, If I must die, I will at least have the consolation of leaving something for my poor children to live on. The merchant returned to the room where he had slept. He filled the great chest that Beast had described with the many gold pieces he found there. After he found his horse in the stable, he left the palace with a sadness equal to the joy he felt on entering it. His horse instinctively took one of the forest paths, and in just a few hours, the good man arrived at his little house. His children gathered around him, but instead of responding to their caresses, the merchant burst into tears as he gazed on them. In his hand, he was holding the branch of roses he had brought for beauty. He gave it to her and said, Beauty, take these roses. They have cost your poor father dearly. Then the merchant told his family about the woeful events that had befallen him. Upon hearing the tale, the two sisters uttered loud cries and said derogatory things to Beauty, who was not crying. See what the pride of this little creature has brought down on us, they said. <laughs> Why didn't she ask for fine clothes the way we did? No, she wanted to get all the attention. She's responsible for father's death, and she's not even shedding a tear. That would be quite pointless, Beauty replied. Why should I shed tears about father when he is not going to die? Since the monster is willing to accept one of his daughters, I am prepared to risk all his fury. I feel fortunate to be able to sacrifice myself for him, since I will have the pleasure of saving my father and proving my feelings of tenderness for him. No, sister said her three brothers. You won't die. We will find this monster, and we are prepared to die under his blows if we are unable to slay him. Don't count on that, children, said the merchant. The beast's power is so great that I don't have the least hope of killing him. I am moved by the goodness of Beauty's heart, but I refuse to risk her life. I'm old and don't have many years left. I will only lose a few years of my life and I don't regret losing them for your sake, my dear children. Rest assured, father, said Beauty, that you will not go to that palace without me. You can't keep me from following you. I may be young, but I am not all that attached to life, and I would rather be devoured by that monster than die of the grief which your loss would cause me. It was no use arguing with Beauty. She was determined to go to the palace. Her sisters were delighted 
for the virtues of their younger sister had filled them with a good deal of envy. The merchant was so preoccupied by the sad prospect of losing his daughter that he forgot about the chest he had filled with gold. But as soon as he repaired to his room to get some sleep, he was astonished to find it beside his bed. He decided not to tell his children that he had become rich, for his daughters would then want to return to town, and he was determined to die in the country. He did confide his secret to Beauty, who told him that several gentlemen had come during his absence, and that two of them wanted to marry her sisters. Beauty begged her father to let them marry. She was so kind that she still loved her sisters with all her heart and forgave them the evil they had done her. When Beauty left with her father, the two mean sisters rubbed their eyes with an onion in order to draw tears. But the brothers cried real tears, as did the merchant. Only Beauty did not cry at all, because she did not want to make everyone even more sad. The horse took the road to the palace, and when night fell, they could see that it was all lit up. The horse went by itself to the stable, and the good man went with his daughter into the hall where there was a magnificent table set with two place settings. The merchant did not have the stomach to eat, but Beauty, forcing herself to appear calm, sat down and served her father. After they had dined, they heard a loud noise, and the merchant tearfully bid adieu to his poor daughter, for he knew it was the beast. Beauty could not help but tremble at the sight of this horrible figure, but she tried as hard as she could to stay calm. The monster asked her if she had come of her own free will, and, trembling, she replied that she had. You are very kind, said the beast, and I am grateful to you. As for you, my good man, get out of here by tomorrow morning, and don't think of coming back here ever again. Goodbye, beauty. Goodbye, beast, she replied. Suddenly, the monster vanished. Oh, my daughter, cried the merchant, embracing beauty. I am half dead with fear. Believe me, you have to let me stay, he said. No, father, beauty said firmly. You must go tomorrow morning and leave me to the mercy of heaven. Heaven may still take pity on me. They both went to bed thinking that they would not be able to sleep all night long. But they had already gotten into their beds when their eyes closed. While she was sleeping, Beauty saw a woman who said to her, I am pleased with your kind heart, Beauty. The good deed you have done in saving your father's life will not go unrewarded. Upon waking, Beauty recounted the dream to her father. While it comforted him a little, it did not keep him from crying aloud when he had to leave his dear daughter. After he had left, Beauty sat down in the great hall and began to cry as well. But since she was courageous, she put herself in God's hands and resolved not to bemoan her fate during the short time she had left to live. Let's leave our heroine here for the moment and get ready for the analysis. The structure will look a lot like something from season one, and that's okay. It's supposed to. We'll get to Beast soon enough, but first, we'll need to take a closer look at Beauty. Don't wander away from the campfire. We're about to shed some light on the incredible treasure hidden in part one of this story. We begin, as we so rarely do, with a loving father, 
This generous man of intelligence and good sense gives his children every opportunity to better their characters and make the most of their gifts and talents, sparing no expense for their education in whatever they could wish to learn. Notice that the opportunities are given to all six children, regardless of their gender or dispositions. The merchant does not play favorites. Whether or not they choose to seize the chances he gives them is up to them. God does this with his children as well. He cares about our character development, giving us every opportunity to learn and grow and become kingdom-minded people who love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. Luke 10.27 But it is up to us to freely choose whether or not to take him up on his offers. Beauty does not reject the opportunities her father gives her, demonstrating that she has wisdom, which contributes further to her outward loveliness. Ecclesiastes 8.1 says that a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. NKJV The Message Translation says it this way, Wisdom puts light in the eyes and gives gentleness to words and manners. So, if you want a spiritual facelift, get wisdom. There is a loveliness about a godly woman that transcends age and physical imperfection because God's holy character radiates from her eyes and resonates in the gentle timber of her voice. Holiness in us is not perfection, but proof of continual sanctification, evidence that we choose to live set apart from the world, with a completely different agenda governing our thoughts, words, and actions, the agenda of drawing nearer to God and furthering His kingdom. If we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, All these things shall be added to us, Matthew 6.33. And all these things can undoubtedly include enhanced physical beauty. If the liveliness of wisdom changes a pretty woman into a raving beauty, a beautiful woman with no wisdom is like a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean, Matthew 23.27. Beauty's two older sisters fit into this description as perfectly as they do into their ornate gowns. There is nothing wrong with being lovely and having pretty things, as long as they do not take God's place in your heart. But these women have made finery, wealth, and social standing their idols. The voluminousness of their skirts has taken up all the space in the chambers of their hearts and coldly shoved the Lord and His teachings out into the library with their younger sister who recognizes them for the treasures they are. Remember that in a series of three, it is the third element that breaks the pattern, in this case, the youngest sibling. While the two older sisters flounce about town, pretending to be of higher rank than the merchant class they are born into, beauty curls up with good books in the study. The elder sisters refuse to speak to their peers or associate with anyone below the aristocracy but beauty speaks kindly to the poor with sweetness and sincerity. Treading on the countless proposals strewn at their feet by merchantmen, the wicked sisters despise them in favor of dukes and counts. Beauty, on the other hand, kindly refuses her suitors in favor of caring for her father and continuing to mature into the woman she will become. We will explore the converse side of this later. For the moment, Let's focus on the virtuous part. Compared to her sisters, 
beauty is kingdom-minded. She protects the people in her charge because she loves them. She chooses to be a good steward of what she has that it may improve. Her sisters, in true false bride fashion, lust ambitiously for privileges and positions beyond their wisdom and capacity. They are not equipped to be great ladies because they do not know how to be noble servants. Jesus instructs us in Mark 9.35, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. The entire family will have an opportunity to try their hand at servanthood in their own version of our world's current great shaking, financial ruin. Tearfully, the merchant informs his family that they are bankrupt and must relocate to the final bit of security he can give them, a small country cottage on a plot of land which everyone must help maintain. Stripped of nearly every comfort they once knew, the family must start again, carving out a new life for themselves in the wilderness. At first, the evil sisters are in denial, insisting that they will escape their father's misfortune in the houses of wealthy husbands, only to find that their horrible natures and empty purses have rendered them social pariahs. The only one given a lifeline in all of this is beauty, whose godly nature has drawn the love and admiration of their neighbors and many wealthy gentlemen. But she does not take the easy way out. Instead, she chooses to remain with her family so that she may comfort her father and help him with his work. Don't roll your eyes. She's not some self-deprecating martyr. Beauty does not leap up to meet the challenge of poverty with giddy excitement. She has to square away with herself first. When she hears her father's news, she too is shocked and upset. She won't miss city life per se, but books and candlelight and comfortable reading chairs cost money the same as any of the privileges her sisters enjoy. Her regular pursuits are about to become rare luxuries, now that each action of her day-to-day life will take her ten steps to achieve for every one she took before. Worst of all, she sees the despair on her father's face as he comes to terms with his inability to provide for his family as generously as he once could. He will need love and support to encourage him to find joy and humble confidence in his new role, bolstering that, of the three sisters, beauty alone will willingly give him. After reflecting on these circumstances, beauty resolves to move forward rather than remaining frozen in the past. My tears won't bring our fortune back, she declares. I must try to be happy without it. How is she able to arrive at this conclusion? The Apostle Paul writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Philippians 4, 11-13 Beauty's inner strength comes from the knowledge that her worth is not tied to her wealth. The attributes and character of God in her equip her to survive and thrive in her wilderness experience. Like Jesus, she is wild adventurousness tempered with a gentle and quiet spirit. She hungers and thirsts for knowledge and wisdom, as evidenced by her voracious reading habits. Each volume she opens is another world to explore, another adventure she gets to experience. Now, like the heroines in her stories, 
She is being given the opportunity to face down adversity with nothing but the unspoiled contents of her mind and heart and see what good she can make with them. Whether she is in a manor or a cottage, she is still an intelligent young woman who loves her family, seeks to do the best she can with what she has, and encourages others to do the same. Here in the humble cottage, Beauty and the men in her family discover strengths they never knew they had as they begin to work the land and care for their home. In true Proverbs 31 fashion, Beauty rises early every day to prepare breakfast and give her family the energy and encouragement to get up and get out the door for work. She then cleans the house to give them a restful place to come home to and spins thread to keep the family clothed and mended. As she works diligently to protect her family and help them become their best selves, beauty is undergoing the same kind of transformation as the men. Even though the work is hard for her at first, her new circumstances are a welcome test because they give her the opportunity to put actions to her words and beliefs. She feels her body and soul being pushed to their limits and revels in mastering the changes and challenges. She inspires her father and brothers to find joy in their new life as she conquers new tasks and marvels at the pleasure taken in a job well done. God means for us to take joy in the good works He assigns us. Nothing is better for a man than that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Ecclesiastes 2.24 If you've struggled with or been kept in bondage over the Proverbs 31 woman, let's pause and address that for a moment. I'm not meaning to glamorize domesticity or hold it up as the only proper vocation for women, or even say that you need to knock yourself out with work and never rest. Far from it. Don't look at this chapter as a checklist. Most of us no longer have to do many of the things the Proverbs woman does, or are able to delegate them to others. Instead, look at the heart behind the way she invests her time. She lives by the adage, see a need, meet a need. Whether the need is in her own home or out in her community, if she can improve the quality of someone's life with the ability she has, she does it with a joyful heart. Following this example, Beauty does the best she can with what she has where she is, and does it gladly. Everyone's joyful task list will look different, but the point is to steward well everything that God has given you, because you are blessed to be a blessing to others. Genesis 12, 2-3 With that being said, God also intends for you to have times when you aren't doing anything for anyone else. Instead, you're resting in Him, focusing on Him, and enjoying your blessings. That's why He made the Sabbath, to give us permission to opt out of burnout. Even Jesus had to go off by Himself to sleep and pray and commune with God, refilling His cup so that He could pour Himself out for others later. Proverbs 31.22 tells us that this virtuous woman makes tapestry for herself. She takes the time to do something creative that she is good at, for no other reason than her own pleasure, and enjoys it simply because she is reflecting the behavior and proclivities of her Heavenly Father. In like manner, beauty allows herself time to sing while she spins or read after her work is done. She does not deprive herself of good things just because she has become the household servant. In fact, stimulating her mind and heart this way gives her the hope and courage to tackle the tasks she completes each day. 
We see the word virtue in connection with beauty and her relationship to the beast constantly in this work. It can make us hate her and even fear for the state of her marriage if we don't have a proper understanding of this word. The Hebrew phrase for virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, 10-31 is eshet chayil. The closest translation in English is woman of valor. According to Jerusalem Prayer Team, chayil has a military connotation. It is mentioned over 150 times, both in the New and Old Testaments, and it always means might, bravery, or success. This is in keeping with your God-given identification as an Eitzor Konegdo, a strong rescuer and warrior. God's daughters are not simpering, whimpering women who hide behind their homes or their careers and pass off all dangerous challenges to the nearest man. We are mighty women of valor who successfully wage war against the kingdom of darkness no matter where we are posted. We go out and conquer everything that threatens the survival and well-being of those in our charge, from hunger and thirst to disease and ignorance, from despair and bondage to the onslaughts of the enemy himself. We do this because, like our brothers, we have been commissioned to be more than conquerors and to bring Jesus to all the world. Beauty has locked on to the secret of finding joy in the battle. Unfortunately, her sisters are not as adroit at adaptation. They sleep in and meander out the door every morning to take walks, trudging through the bog of memories of wealth and status. Not only do they ditch their younger sister and refuse to help her, they also mock her for finding peace and happiness in simple living. But their father knows better. He sees the patience and virtue in his daughter that distinguishes her from her sisters. The joy of the Lord is her strength. She has a gentle and quiet spirit, a confidence in who she is that allows her to deal mercifully with her sisters instead of competing with them or intentionally making their lives even more miserable. Ironically, these traits antagonize the wicked women even more and drive them to behave like Cinderella's stepsisters blind to the benefits of the righteous example beauty sets. If you are struggling with this kind of persecution, know that your Heavenly Father sees you and loves your beautiful heart. The wicked will be punished, and the righteous rewarded in His time, and He will give you rest and relief. When the time is right, He will remove them or you from your current situation and draw you nearer to Himself to heal your wounds. One year into their wilderness experience, the father learns that one of his ships has come into port with its cargo intact. While he prepares to meet the ship, his eldest daughters are busily planning to spend his money before he's even earned it. They pester him to bring them finery so that they may adorn themselves for their grand re-entry into society. Beauty only shakes her head and keeps her mouth shut. She knows that anything can happen and does not intend to get her hopes up. What little money may come from the cargo will be devoured by her greedy sisters. She has no intention of asking for any favors. There is wisdom in this, but already we are beginning to see a root of bitterness in Beauty's heart. While she does allow herself little luxuries, she is beginning to make a damaging agreement with herself. She does not deserve to be cherished. She has spent a year as the family servant, 
bearing the rejection of her sisters. While she is appreciated by her father and brothers, her sister's cruelty is beginning to erode the edges of her natural resolve. When her father gently presses her to ask him for something, Beauty concedes and requests that he bring her a rose. But this is more out of regard for her sisters than because of her actual desire for a present. The truth is that she doesn't want to start a civil war by asking for nothing and appearing too pious to them. Once her father leaves, she will be left alone to contend with the onslaughts of her sister's verbal abuse. Better to limit what they can use as ammunition. At this point, we have to address what the wilderness experience is meant to do. If you allow it to, it strips you of the false things you once clung to and found solace in, instead of God and the life He designed for you. It sharpens your current skills and senses because there are less distractions. It hones your focus on God and encourages you to draw near to Him. Finally, it equips you with the skills you have yet to develop and will sorely need in the next phase of your life. But if you're not careful, bitterness can creep into the spaces you've emptied out along the way and poison the streams of living water flowing from your heart. Unlike her sisters, Beauty has gleaned all she can from this particular level of separation. She knows that she can make a good life out of bravery, hard work, simplicity, and familial love. She knows that she can run a home and encourage others. But she has shot past the edge of what she needed to learn from her time in the cottage and crash-landed on the other side with severe heart wounds that she won't acknowledge because there isn't enough room for her own issues with her sister's belligerence taking up all the space in their home. She will need to be moved deeper into isolation, into a new kind of wilderness, designed especially for her, before she loses touch with her value and becomes ineffective. Her opportunity arrives with her father's second ruination. After discovering that all his earnings have been garnished in lawsuits, he promptly turns around and heads for home. It is interesting that he must get lost in the woods, because his identity has not been jeopardized by the terrible news. He doesn't need to go questing to rediscover his purpose. In fact, he's excited to go home and spend time with his children. Perhaps it must occur, because, out of all of his children, beauty is the one he does not want to disappoint. She is becoming an independent woman and there will be little he can provide for her before she takes the next step into adulthood. He cannot heal her wounds, but he can set her on the path to a great adventure, better than any treasure he could have brought home. Notice that Beauty is the only sister who asks for something living as a present, something that does not grow in their new home. A single rose will die in its time, but while it lives, it brings happiness and pleasure to those who see and smell it. And, when properly maintained, the bush it grows from may last forever. In her desperation, Beauty has accidentally confessed that what she wants her father to bring her is the chance for a new and abundant life, ever growing and changing, away from the cottage and the servile existence she has assumed. A life in which she can be cherished and loved in return for simply being who she is. Unwittingly, the merchant is driven by her subconscious desire deep into the forest. Pushed off his horse by a blinding snowstorm, he trudges through the darkness, the ominous chorus of howling wolves urging the man on toward a mysterious light in the distance.
discovering that the light belongs to an immense castle. The merchant thanks God for his provision and takes his horse to the well-outfitted stable for relief before entering the vast edifice. When he does, he finds that great preparations have been made for someone to warm themselves by the fire and have an excellent dinner. He does not assume that these things have been done for him and waits patiently to see if anyone will come to greet him or enjoy the comforts of the room. After a decent interval, he makes himself at home, albeit graciously. He sleeps off the cares and cold of the night before and wakes up refreshed and renewed with a new set of clothes. After polishing off a cup of hot chocolate, he thanks the kind fairy whom he assumes presides over the estate and has seen to his needs. We know from the end of the story that he is correct. There is a good fairy who steers the magical mechanisms of the castle and sees that everyone in it is graciously provided for. She is our Holy Spirit figure, giving gentle instruction and encouragement to the castle's inhabitants, including beauty, and showering them with gifts beyond measure. This comparison is further reinforced when we realize that much of what the good fairy does in the story is unseen, as is our counselor and his work, John fourteen seventeen. You may be wondering, if the good fairy is in charge, why doesn't she set Beast free? Why doesn't she give Beauty a hint as to what's really going on? The issue is that freedom is not foisted on anyone. It is a gift which must be received and accepted in order to be activated and fully enjoyed. Both beauty and beast have made agreements with one form of bondage or another. Just as we are given the freedom to accept or reject salvation and abundant life, they must choose liberation for themselves. As her father prepares to take his leave of the enchanted castle, he comes upon a beautiful rose arbor and innocently plucks a branch of flowers to bring home as a gift for beauty. Instantly, the beast breaks on the scene with a terrible roar, charging his ungrateful visitor to beg God's forgiveness for his theft and prepare to meet his end. When the merchant apologizes and explains his motivation, Beast dismisses his attempts at flattery and demands that in three days, one of the man's daughters must willingly come to the castle to die in his place. If they are too cowardly to come, the merchant must return himself. This is the first and last act of cruelty to others we see Beast commit. Within moments of issuing this terrible command, he instructs the merchant to return to his room and fill the empty chest there with anything he likes, for the beast doesn't want him to return home empty-handed. He even offers to deliver the weighty bride price to the merchant's house. Like the prince in East of the Sun and West of the Moon, Beast is not a bad guy, but he has lived with his curse so long that his humanity has begun to retreat behind his animalistic exterior. In his loneliness, the prince has forgotten how to speak as a man without the growl of the beast in his throat. You may have experienced this yourself during a period of isolation. When you are removed from society, manners and graces that were once second nature to you atrophy like unused muscles. You forget how to carry on an engaging conversation how to look out for the needs of others, how to present yourself with confident humility, remembering that you have value and good God-given works to do in this world to glorify Him and bless others. And you can forget that you don't have to gruffly take advantage of others in order to get what you need. 
beast is desperate for deliverance, and although the terms of his curse do not require a human sacrifice per se, he gets diabolically creative to secure the kind of sacrifice that is required to set him free. But we can tell that this is not his true nature. This brief flash of cruelty is undercut again and again by his generosity and kind heart. His demand that one of the daughters come to die in the merchant's place is a powerful test to determine whether or not the prince has any hope of restoration. Unlike our last prince, he does not openly suggest that the daughter will be welcomed into anything but death once she arrives. Marriage in itself is a form of death, because you leave behind your old way of life, and much of what was familiar, to become a stranger in a strange land, starting a new life with your spouse. When we join ourselves to God, we die to self and draw nearer to Him, allowing ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ and becoming new creations. Romans 12.2 Neither of these choices is easily made, and staying true to the commitments once you make them is daunting. Remaining a willing and active participant in them proves your strength of character, even as it is being refined, and the rewards for your faithfulness are limitless. But Beast promises no rewards. If one of the daughters is willing to come to him with no other agenda than to selflessly lay down her life to save her father, that woman will show herself capable of love and courage powerful enough to liberate the prince from his curse. It is out of this wild hope that Beast strikes the terrible bargain with his frightened houseguest. Shaken as the good man is, He is grateful that he will be able to provide for his children in spite of his continued losses, and comforts himself with the idea that he will be able to leave something to them after his death, for he determines that he and not one of his daughters will fulfill the beast's command. But he underestimates the depth of his youngest daughter's brave, reckless love. She does not even waste time crying about the possibility of her father's death. Despite her sister's derogatory remarks and her brother's protective instincts, she rejoices at the opportunity to sacrifice herself to prove her love for her father, confessing that she is not all that attached to life and would rather be devoured than die of the grief her father's death would cause her. Her remarks may sound radical, but they are actually very biblical. Jesus tells us, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, John 15, 13, and that whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, Matthew 19, 23-24. Revelation 12, 11 says that the brethren overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and do not love their lives to the death. Part of our power as believers comes from knowing that Jesus' sacrifice grants us victory even in our deaths, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. By choosing to die in her father's place and counting the trial as a joy, beauty is following Jesus' example. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, Hebrews 12.2. This joy came from the knowledge that his death would end the separation between God and mankind, giving us the opportunity to come home without fear or shame and be one with our eternal family and Creator. 
Beauty's alleged death should inspire her sisters to think better of her and change their ways, placing more value on the people in their lives rather than things. But it doesn't. They are ecstatic to see her go, because she will no longer torment their consciences with her godly nature. Beauty forgives them and encourages her father to allow them to marry the men who have come to call on them in his absence. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23:34. Unwilling to let her face her choice alone, Beauty's father travels with her to the castle, where they share a final meal together before Beast appears. He thanks Beauty for her kindness in coming of her own free will, and orders her father to leave by the next morning, never to return. Beauty comforts her father before they retire for the evening, assuring him that he must leave her to the mercy of heaven for it may still take pity on her. And it does. In a night vision, Beauty is visited by our Holy Spirit figure, the Good Fairy, who tells her that she is pleased with her kind heart and that she will be rewarded for what she has done to save her father's life. This is the equivalent of God saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Matthew 25:23 Before this can happen, however, beauty must be completely isolated from the parts of her past that she has mastered, because she is as sorely in need of redemptive love as her cellmate, and she won't find it if she buries herself in taking care of her home and her family. After tearfully bidding her father goodbye, she courageously puts herself in God's hands and resolves not to bemoan her fate. We'll return to the castle in episode 3 to find out what happens next. Thanks for stopping by. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to see what else is going on in the fairy tale forest or support the show, check out the Lost in the Woods Buy Me a Coffee page. I'm Autumn Woods, and I can't wait to see you on the path next time you get Lost in the Woods.